For this first Sunday of Black History Month, I'd like to invite us to focus on the fascinating life of Lorraine Hansberry, who died in 1965 at the far too young an age of 34. In those few decades, however, she nevertheless became the first black woman to have her play produced on Broadway and the first black winner of the prestigious Drama Critics Circle Award. That first play, A Raisin in the Sun, remains the most widely produced and read play by a black American woman. And when she won that Drama Critics Award, she was 29 years old, the youngest playwright to ever do so. And as impressive as those accolades are, she was also so much more. In the words of one of her biographers, she was a black lesbian woman born into the black middle class who became a Greenwich Village bohemian leftist married to a man, a Jewish communist songwriter. She cast her lot with the working classes and became wildly famous. She drank too much. She died early of cancer. She loved wonderful women and yet lived with an unrelenting loneliness. She was intoxicated by beauty, and she was enraged by injustice. If this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, and I hope it does, uh, I was inspired to focus on Hansberry by the incredible recent biography of her, Looking for Lorraine, the Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry by Imani Perry, and published by our own UUA Beacon Press. I've been wanting to read this book um, ever since the New York Times named it as one of their 100 most notable books of 2018. If you prefer to watch instead of read and or both, I also highly recommend the 2017 documentary about her Sighted Eyes and Feeling Heart. Uh, it's available through a number of ways, including through Canopy. I'll do a brief commercial for them. Uh, who knows about Canopy? Who's used it? All right, I see a few hands. So if you have a public library card, you have access to Canopy. And it is a free streaming service that you, know, have, you can use, watch like 10 films a month to sort of curate. It's, it's incredible, excellent, and underused. Check it out, Canopy with a K. Uh, the title of that documentary comes from a quote by Hansberry that one cannot live with sighted eyes and a feeling heart and not know and react to the miseries that afflict this world. So she's saying, if you don't know about the miseries of this world and if you're not doing something about it, you must not have sighted eyes and a feeling heart. You're doing it wrong, is what she's saying. Uh, and, and in the week of another hard week of headlines, I find Hansberry's life and writing to really be a comfort and a challenge to continue the struggle for social justice. She wanted to change the world, to build the beloved community, to co-create the world we dream about, to turn our dreams into deeds. And to tell you some of how she came to live such a radiant and radical life, allow me to turn back the clock and start at the beginning. She was born into an impressive family. Hansberry's paternal grandfather, her father's father, was a history professor at Alcorn College, now Alcorn State University. It's in Mississippi, south of Jackson. Alcorn was founded in 1871 as the first, uh, land grant, first black land-grant college in the country. Her father, in turn, graduated from Alcorn and became a successful real estate entrepreneur in Chicago. 
Her mother was a teacher and significantly involved in local politics. Her uncle, William Hansberry, graduated for Harvard and then taught at Howard University and is known as the father of African studies. He's kind of a big deal. Uh, and so let's just say surrounded by such a family, let's just say there were high expectations of both Lorraine and her siblings. She was born in 1930 in Chicago. She was the last of four children. And given what we know about the trajectory of her life, I think it's fitting that her mother gave birth to her in the first black-owned and operated hospital in the nation. Keep in mind, however, that being born in 1930 meant that that first decade of her childhood happened during the Great Depression, which you know, stretched from 1929, the year um, before she was born, until the late 1930s. That severe worldwide economic depression was the context for one of her earliest lessons in class consciousness. Her parents had bought her this white rabbit fur coat, and they really wanted her to wear it to school to show off, right? That coat for them was a celebration of their hard work and success. But for Lorraine, it meant getting beat up by her classmates, whose families had far less resources. And although her resistance to wearing that coat was an early sign of her developing much more radical politics than her family of origin, I should hasten to add that her parents were activists in some significant ways. Uh, in particular, in 1937, when Lorraine turned seven years old, her father quite boldly bought a building in a section of town with a racially restrictive covenant. This bold move for greater racial equity developed into a years-long court battle and the family became a target for hate crimes. The scariest moment was when someone threw a chunk of cement through their window and barely missed Lorraine's head. She was seven years old at the time. The struggle over this property actually went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and in 1940, when Lorraine was 10 years old, the highest court in our land ruled in her father's favor. You can look it up, Hansberry versus Lee. Those of you who are familiar with her play, Raisin in the Sun, if you're not, go watch it. Cindy Poitier, right? It's incredible. Uh, we'll see how her real-life experience helped inspire that play about a black family buying a home in a white neighborhood. Although the family won the case, her father was disillusioned that the court chose to focus only on a technicality. Uh, so they won, but the racially restricted covenant was only deemed um, invalid because it was, quote, improperly executed as a contract, not because it was unconstitutional and morally wrong. It would not be until 1948, another eight years later, that the Supreme Court would do the right thing and declare that all racially exclusionary contracts are unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment and were therefore legally unenforceable. Tragically, her father would not live long enough to witness those results. In 1946, when Lorraine was only 15, her father died of a brain aneurysm while on a trip to Mexico. And although Lorraine described her father as this real American-type American, like he loved the country, uh, he believed in fighting for civil rights the, quote, respectable way. She believed in whatever way worked. Uh, it turns out that he was in Mexico as part of a larger plan to move their family there. He had lost faith in this country. He had bitterly decided that there was little hope for racially, racially, racial integration and justice in the United States. Her father's death was devastating, and his uh, influence honoring him and arguing with him and thinking about him in the aftermath of his death, it's all over her work as a writer. 
And before I move away from her childhood, I should also mention that I'm also fascinated when I learn about people who become these sort of world-class successes, and then you go back and see they had this lackluster academic record. Uh, in Lorraine's case, her high school transcript shows that she got a C in stage design, a C in contemporary literature, and a D in theater. <laughs> If only those teachers had known, though part of me also wonders about what kind of race and gender things were going on in her interactions with those teachers who gave her those grades. Uh, regardless of those mediocre grades, her family, who had seen evidence of her creativity and brilliance at various parts, expected her to attend a historically black college or university. Instead, we witnessed the first major turning point of Lorraine charting a different path. Uh, she chose the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, so a huge university where only a smattering of black students had enrolled since 1875. In 1949, while at U-Madison, many of her fellow students were electing to study abroad in Europe. She chose instead to spend the summer at an art program in Mexico, uh, the, father, the country where her father had died. You know, she just, that was part of her work, working out and her grief. This international immersion in an artist's enclave shifted something within Hansberry, and upon her return to the university, she found herself further disillusioned with academic study. She found herself on academic probation after the fall semester and dropped out early in the spring. Soon she was on her way to the next chapter in her life in New York City. That fall, instead of starting a new semester in the ivory tower, she was celebrating her first publication. It was in a left-wing journal. It was a poem called Flag from a Kitchenette Window. And that's how her father had made all his money. They would take these buildings in Chicago and they would subdivide them into smaller apartments, each with a kitchen and then they would sell them to all the African-Americans who were coming from the South to the North and needed housing in Chicago. So this is her poem, Flag from a Kitchenette Window. South Side Morning, America is crying. In our land, the paycheck taxes to somebody's government. Black boy in a window, Algiers and Salerno, the three-colored banner raised to some anonymous freedom. We decide, and on the Memorial Day, hang it from our window and let it beat the steamy Jim Crow airs. This poem has been interpreted as a sparse indictment of American militarism and, and hypocritical proclamations of liberty in the face of Jim Crow reality. An ironic commentary on Memorial Day. It's also, if you, uh, some of you may remember our Poetry Sunday last year focused on Gwendolyn Brooks, that Chicago poet who was the first African-American to receive a Pulitzer Prize. Lorraine read her poetry in um, high school, and you can see her influence on Lorraine and her early work. In Lorraine's early years in New York City, she could also be found frequently at social justice actions and volunteering with um, political campaigns of left-wing candidates. Uh, much to her parents' um, chagrin, they were sort of stayed with the Republican Party as the historic party of Lincoln, so they, they didn't get what she was about. Indeed, she met her eventual husband, Bobby um, Nemiroff, at a racial justice protest at New York University where he was in graduate school. They were married in 1954. That's the year of Brown versus the Board of Education uh, that you know, ruled that racially segregated schools are inherently unequal and violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Although that decision was good news, Lorraine was clear her dream for this country was much broader and deeper than Brown represented. 
I should also be sure to include that Hansberry lived quite a radical life as a lesbian as well. Keep in mind she died quite a few years before the Stonewall Uprising of 1969. And although the romantic part of her relationship with Bobby did end, they remained close, and for the rest of his life, another like two and a half decades, he remained a fierce and strong advocate for her and her work. I find it particularly poignant that Robert, his second wife, and their daughter left neatly maintained folders of her writing, including her writing on lesbian themes as part of preserving and promoting her legacy. Among Lorraine's lovers was Molly Malone Cook. Um, she's the one, she, at that time, she was a photographer for the Village Voice. Um, your handout, if you look, that, that photo on that handout was taken by Molly Malone Cook. Uh, she's better known for having moved to Massachusetts, where she would be the partner for four decades of the beloved poet Mary Oliver. Uh, Mary Oliver will be the focus of our poetry service in April. Lorraine was also close friends with the singer and activist uh, Nina Simone, as well as the writer and activist James Baldwin. They were sort of this uh, trinity of a New York friendship. Simone said of Lorraine, we never talked about men or clothes or other such inconsequential things when we got together. It was always Marx, Lenin, and revolution. You know, real girls talk. <laughs> Uh, Sunita Simone also used to say that when, uh, when she premiered on, uh, when she played for the first time, debuted at Carnegie Hall, uh, Lorraine Hansberry called her that night, and, but she didn't congratulate her. She was so eager to talk about like, the lead up to the March on Washington. It was 1963. Baldwin said of her that I would often stagger down her stairs as the sun came up, usually in the middle of a paragraph and always in the middle of a laugh. That marvelous laugh, that marvelous face. I loved her. She was my sister and my comrade. Although Hansbury su supported the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., she also supported much more radical approaches to racial justice, which resulted in the FBI surveilling her at various points. It's interesting to read some of the FBI reports. Like they, they sent the FBI to raise it in the sun to see if it was like communist propaganda, and then they decided she was too popular to do anything. And also, the, many of the FBI reports, they like fixate, they sort of fetishize her beauty. They're like, half of their report is like how attractive she is. <laughs> uh, but here's an example of what got them worried. In a 1963 talk delivered almost a year before Malcolm X said, did his famous by any means necessary speech, here's what Lorraine said. She said, Negroes must concern themselves with every single means of struggle, legal and illegal, passive, active, violent, and nonviolent. They must harass, debate, petition, give money to court struggles, sit in, lie down, strike, boycott, sing hymns, pray on steps, shoot from their windows when the racists come cruising through their communities. The acceptance of our present condition is the only form of extremism which discredits us with our children. The acceptance of our present condition is the only form of extremism which discredits us to our children. Pancreatic cancer, however, would cut her radical life tragically short. She died about a year and a half after that talk, again in 1965. She was 34 years old. Even in those few decades, she left a powerful impression on many. Her funeral ended up being held on the day of a blizzard 
And nevertheless, more than 700 people showed up in New York to pay their respects. Among those in the crowd risking his life to be there was Malcolm X. He was in hiding at the time due to death threats and rarely came out into public. Indeed, he was murdered three weeks later on a day that was also Nina Simone's birthday. What a measure of a life, though. How does one live in a way that such a fierce activist for racial justice as Malcolm X would risk their life to pay their respects to how you had lived yours? For Hansberry's funeral, James Baldwin wrote these words. Lorraine and I were very good friends, and I'm going to miss her. Grief is very private. I, I can't really talk about her or what she meant to me. We talked about everything under the sun. We fought like brother and sister at the top of our lungs. It was so wonderful to watch her get angry. It was wonderful to watch her laugh. We passed some great moments together, and I am very proud to say that together we confronted some terrible things. She is gone now, but we have our memories and her work, and I think we must resolve not to fail her because she did not fail us. A few years later, Nina Simone wrote a song to honor Hansberry titled Young, Gifted, and Black. You'll hear it later as our postlude. It was inspired by a speech titled, The Nation Needs Your Gifts, that Lorraine gave to an audience of young black writers, hoping to encourage them to risk telling the truth of their experience and to leverage their creativity in the work of justice. Her words, as were the words that Angela read earlier, are as resonant today in our age of Black Lives Matter as when Lorraine Hansberry first spoke them. She said, though it be a thrilling and marvelous thing to be merely young and gifted, it is doubly so to be young, gifted, and black. She continues in words that are so powerful to hear at the beginning of Black History Month. She said, you are the product of a presently insurgent and historically vivacious and heroic culture, a culture of indomitable will for freedom and aspiration for dignity. Nina Simone said her hope for the song was to make black children all over the world feel good about themselves forever. Today, more than five, days, five decades after Lorraine Hansberry's premature death, part of her legacy is that Raisin in the Sun remains the most frequently produced play by a black American playwright. The title of the play is from Langston Hughes' poem, Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or does it fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like sugary sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? That poem in Hansberry's play remind us that the battles Lorraine fought, they are still before us. The exploitation of the poor racism, neocolonialism, homophobia, and patriarchy, and she models some of what we must do to confront these oppressions. Use frank speech. Use beauty. Use imagination. Use courage. And always, she showed us, be with the people. In that spirit of continuing the struggle for collective liberation until we are all free, 